kind of excited tonight. Kind of excited tonight because uh, for me, talks are a little bit like show and tell. And, uh, and this is a topic that I really love to show and tell. Uh, what I'd like to talk about is uh, tonight, which is a subject I talk about a lot, is uh, the subject of me. I really like to talk about me. Me, myself, I. The subject tonight is the um, what we call self or ego, or as the Buddha called it, uh, personality view or identity view. And it's a wonderful topic because it is the um, it is according to the Buddha our deepest attachment. It is the most uh, burdensome attachment. It is ambiguous because clearly uh, we aren't nothing, but nor are we something. And so somewhere in the middle of this, we have to find our way. And see which part of it is what would be called illusory or untrue and which part is, is real. So discerning the difference between the real and the unreal. So as, the, as we put our light, the light of attention, on this question of our self-view, it is really about, and all of our practices, not about a, a deleting, suppressing, stamping out, wrestling to the ground, but is actually seeing, seeing, knowing, understanding. And I like to think of this whole process of investigation of the personality view as seeing through the self-illusion. The Buddha's most, to me, the most pith instructions that he offered in the one small sutra where he used the phrase or he used the words nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Whoever has heard this teaching has heard the entire Dharma. Whoever has practiced this teaching has practiced the Dharma. Whoever has realized the fruits of this has realized the fruit of the Dharma. So everything hinges around this um, seeing through this self-illusion, or what the Buddha described as liberation uh, through, as you can hear from this, the relinquishing of clinging. So it, you can hear nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. It doesn't mean to get rid of. It means to relinquish the clinging to. And the clinging to, or identification with, uh, this is the clinging mind, the mind that binds itself to something that's not reliable. That is considered the source of suffering. When we cling to 
the self-view or the ego, we enter into a very narrow gravitational field. We tend to be quite, feel quite separate, preoccupied, much tighter. And you may even notice over the course of these days that we are gradually moving from that gravitational field of and tension that goes along with me and mine and the various views to what be, could be called a, a wider, the wider gravitational field of, um, of awakening or of, of openness, awareness. Rumi, in one of my favorite poems of his, says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being. So Rumi speaks to this coming out of the tangle of fear thinking. And we offered this morning, or Mark offered beautifully, the instructions on working with thought not so much by deleting thoughts, reminding us that thoughts are just another sense experience. Thoughts are to our mind door of perception as a sound is to our ear. It's completely natural. But it's a very different animal when we are, when we are bound up in fear thinking, bound up in me thinking. So Rumi says, come out of the tangle of fear thinking. He doesn't say stop thinking. Come out of the tangle of it. Begin to notice it. Live in silence, flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings, ever rings of being. The first part of the poem where he says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Why do we stay in prison? Anybody want to say? Why do we stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Familiar and comfortable. Beautiful. Beautiful. It's really so innocent, in a way. Because moment by moment, you could say from beginningless time, through the presence of a, what the Buddha called a mental factor, called avijja, or ignorance, which is, simply means not seeing or not seeing clearly. Quite innocently, based on our conditioning, based on trauma, as as we spoke about, as Mark spoke about, and many of you have shared today in groups, and, and all of us to some degree, through the events of our lives, trauma, conditioning, we have, out of reaction to those events, those rea the reaction of liking, disliking, uh, denying, of course, when we were quite young, we didn't have the tools to be able to come out of the tangle of fear thinking and live in silence. Instead, we reacted with liking, disliking, and ignoring or denying. And instead, literally, in a way, took birth into the world of our ideas, into the world of, of story. all in the very simple reaction to these simple feeling tones that get triggered moment after moment. 
triggered pleasant, followed by liking. Liking followed by, by wanting. Wanting followed by seeking, becoming. And the pressure of all of that, the pressure of moving from that narrow, from that, um, from that openness, that innocence that all of you are rediscovering, that natural beauty that you are. And so I was looking around the room at the beginning of the talk and looking at each of you, and we get the, the best view because every one of you is starting to, not just starting to, you're shining. And, you can, and you're tender and sweet. And you, it's so obvious that your natural glow, your natural love, all, those, uh, all that is natural to you is beginning to radiate, beginning to flow. Of course, this doesn't, whatever's flowing, doesn't necessarily measure up to you the ideas that you may have about yourself going through your mind. And I'm going to talk about that. But in reaction to these simple feeling tones from beginningless time, we, the pressure of that spawns, it compels us to enter into this profound drama you could call it the drama of the imagined me. The story of me. I, me, mine. And because on the psychological level, that we can see so much on retreat, that identity that, that is being thought about, because it's tethered to our bodies, and our bodies are what? They're always changing. They don't necessarily oblige our will and our wish. As Anna spoke so beautifully, they are in a constant state of flux. So that profound drama that plays through our mind, to the, to the degree that it's tethered to our body, it creates this feeling of great insecurity. The story that plays through our mind is tethered to time. The story of ourselves is always about, isn't it? Always about going from the past. That we can't find it when we look for it, of course. Passing through the present, as though that it's really a place to pass through. Where is the present, anyway? Where does it? Where does it, where was the end of the past and the beginning of the present, and where does the future begin? But our mind creates these as discrete worlds and turns the, the present into the place where I live on my way to somewhere else. And this is the story of me. And, what, and the thing about time, once we enter the world of time, or you could call it the house of time, the funny thing is, every time I start to talk about this, I, I realize I can't, when we're right here, where is time? Where is the past now? Where is the future now? Where is the present now? Our investigation, our mindful attention begins to burst this house of time and we start to discover something different, not just about um, life, 
about time, but something about our direct experience when we step out of that house of time. But the story of me is bound in time, and time's always running out. Time is moving fast or slow, depending on perception. It's another thing that reminds us that time is not a, an absolute. It's, a, it's something that continually fluctuates according to our perception. As you p- may have noticed, when it's pleasant here, there's only, there's only two more days. When it's unpleasant, two more days. How will I ever make it? Or, you know, we have this at the beginning of that. We have this in the course of any number of sittings. So our identities, because they are tethered to these, um, these concepts of, of time and tethered to thoughts, our identities are easily shaken, inherently insecure. There's not a person here whose identity is um, solid. It's very dreamlike, this identity. Unstable. And we begin to feel our, our organism registers the instability of all of that of all of that, uh, of all that, what you could be called the case of mistaken identity. It feels the reverberations of trying to organize ourselves around something that is not ultimately securable. We work hard at it, defending, protecting, building up, healing, enlightening letting go of, and in that process keep reconstructing over and over something, what appears like a thing, that um, just is very, is very insecure. But we don't connect easily with that feeling of insecurity. Innocently, we've moved away from it. That's sh- the shakiness that we all feel when we try to find what's something solid in this story that plays through our mind. And again, out of love for ourselves, out of an innate or out of a natural longing to find relief, instead of just feeling that insecurity, that shakiness, and let ourselves be, let it be the cause of anchoring us back into uh, the unfolding present, the eternal now, some call it. Instead, our mind, the pressure of the insecurity and the need to get away from it spawns even more compulsion, and we literally run from here. This is the story of, of the imagined me. And then we, as the song describes, we end up looking for love in all the wrong places. We end up completely going out of ourselves in search, disconnecting, losing contact with that natural innocence, that natural presence. But we begin to practice, and we discover, we begin to reclaim our heritage, 
Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being that destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. And Rumi cries out, inside this new love, in his poem called Inside This New Love, inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Take an ax to the prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now. You're covered with thick clouds. Slide out the side. Die and be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you have died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. This story, personality view, is uh, a house of cards, as you may have noticed on, in the course of the retreat. Does this make sense to you as you hear this? This is the imagined version of yourself, the psychological one, the one that you cannot find when you look for it. This is the one who um, this is the one, this is the sufferer within us, who we cannot find when we look for it. As Wei Wu Wei put it, why are you so unhappy? Because 99.9% .9 of everything you do and think is for yourself. And there isn't one. This has actually been investigated recently by our scientists who said after more than a century of looking at it, brain researchers have long since concluded that there is no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain and that it simply does not exist. <laughs> but of course this is not to say that you don't exist. As I said before, each of you are here in full regalia, full, full presence. You're here, I'm here. But the one who is here, the one who is here right in this moment, in reality, cannot be found in that second-hand version that plays through your mind. That profound drama is really a story of, you could call it your situation, but it's really not you. Where is that one now when we look with, on, with, our, with mindfulness? So the Buddha called this view Sakaya Ditti.
personality view or self-view, reminding us that it is a view, it is a perception, it is not an ultimate reality. A thought of yourself is not yourself. How does that feel? After your last thought of yourself has ceased and before the next one arises, how does it feel when for one moment you come face to face with the reality of you, not the idea of you? As we sit here right now, it seems so obvious that there is no thought that could capture what this experience is. Yet, in our mind, when we are in the tangle of fear thinking, we enter into these virtual battles that, uh, that are born innocently from, from our past reactions, but we enter into, we're literally born into a case of mistaken identity. And these thoughts, these stories, are just a projection. They, don't, they can't capture you. As Emerson put it, who you are, shout so loud, I can't hear what you say. Who you are, shout so loud, I can't hear what you say. Just sense that for a moment. So does this, this feeling that you have in this moment, there may be many feelings, but how does it measure with the story that plays through your mind much of the time? Whatever your particular version of Sakaya Ditti or personality view, whichever one is your top tune that you could say, how does it, how does it feel to relinquish that for a moment? Which is liberating. How far did you have to travel to do that? Isn't it interesting how one of our common thoughts is, I can't, part of the personality view is, almost every version of it is, why I can't be happy now. Some version of what I have to have. Well, we talked about it the other night. What we have to have in order to be happy. What we have to finish, what we have to heal what we have to become. This is this habit of tethering our well-being to time and what's next. And these beliefs is what the Buddha called um, tanha, craving for becoming. That toppling forward into that imagined future that never arrives. Because we remember when we practice that time is always now. We sense that for a moment. And just to punctuate it a little bit, I share the words of Rumi where he says, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing, of right doing, there's a lot of our, our internal narrative, right doing and wrongdoing. There's a field 
outside or beyond these ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing. There's a field, I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. One sutta declares having no view of self, one is always peaceful. So that's the good news. <laughs> the challenging news is that we don't stay, our minds don't stay here with full awareness of here, full awareness that what we are shouts so loud that we can't hear what we say. We don't stay with that understanding. Isn't it true we can be sitting here just being ourselves, natural beauty, natural in those moments of simplicity, completely sufficient, completely enough, can anyone find the insufficient or not enough right now? If you don't consult your memory? So we're sitting here enjoying what could be called our natural state. And then a thought arises. And that thought is really just a another expression of, our, of the nature of our mind, another aspect of awareness. Again, another, just another sense experience. Part of the natural display of our life, the creative flow of experience. And if that thought is recognized as a thought, it, no problem, it just liberates itself. It just shows itself like everything else as just a a phantom, a bubble, a dream, just a momentary experience. But if that thought goes unnoticed, which it does much of the time, what happens? The way one teacher, Dujam Rinpoche, said, it spreads out into ordinary thinking, which he calls the chain of delusion, because it's when those thoughts are followed and unnoticed, we literally enter into that imagined world of ourselves, that second-hand version, the virtual version of ourselves. And unfortunately, it colors our perception when we enter into that world and makes us so forgetful of this natural great peace, this natural presence. And it is always about the, the past. The past is the ground out of which uh, our views come. All those innocent experiences that formed and shaped the way that we think about ourselves.
but it's at that moment that we construct, our mind constructs the house of time. Everything spawned from the past. As one of my teachers put it, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past rest on our chests and destroy our life and freedom. Remove them by noticing these I thoughts. So we, this is what we, we were offered up this morning, to begin to notice the selfing process, how the mind creates in that unbidden way, in that unprompted, uncontrolled way spawns this version of ourselves called me, my, and mine. It says, remove them by noticing this, the I thoughts. Freedom waits. Maybe you can understand this a little bit more now. Freedom waits, but most are engaged with something else. Don't tie yourself to anything in the past or the future because it will not work. Be attached only to this moment. Now, not the idea of this moment. To the life of this moment. When you hold to something other than your true nature, you will be disturbed. By holding attachment to transient things, you declare to yourself that you are not the fullness in which all is. This is what our mind does again and again, declares to us that we are in some way insufficient, some way not enough. Marcus mentioned this many times. How do we know that now? that we are insufficient, not enough, bound, not free. How do we know that? This is the invitation of our practice, to really examine these basic assumptions, to put that light of attention on our immediate experience and find that one who is bound. Find them. I challenge anybody here to find that one. As Hafiz put it in his poem called Stop Being So Religious, what do sad people have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being so religious like that. All of us have built a shrine to the past. All of us have tethered our sense of well-being to that, that insecure, imaginary version of ourselves. This has been our innocent compulsion to deal with the ever-changing circumstances, to deal with everything that is, that is inherently challenging about being alive. We have not, up until now, had the tools to go the opposite direction, to turn toward ourselves. We've turned out 
as that poem says, we've run from silence. We've gone out of ourselves in search. And what you've been doing day in and day out is turning the other way, turning toward the very nature of your mind itself, the nature of your experience itself. It doesn't fit so neatly into those personality views, what you discover. It's really hard to put it into words. What can you say about yourself right now? From this immediacy, what can you say? Except, I'm here. I am. Am. And what happens when we don't even say am and we don't say I? We discover, well, at least what many have discovered is, and what Noshul Ken Rinpoche calls natural great peace. The Tibetans have spoken a lot about, about this, this available but often overlooked sufficiency, enoughness, freedom that each of us really is. But they say that we all fall into the spell of what they call what he, they call the four faults. And the four faults, and I may not remember them very well tonight, but the four faults is that that sense of freedom is too close for us to recognize, they say. It's too vast, can't put it in our neat bo little boxes. It's too wonderful, too close, too vast, too wonderful for us to accommodate. And last, maybe the most important, this one really kicks up a lot of steam, it's too easy. We can't possibly believe that freedom is only as that passage from the Tibetan Book of the Dead says, a split second, a half breath away. That clear light. So we have to, since we have, as one of my teachers said, we have 35 million years of practice entering into, incarnating into this imaginary world and taking that, the, the thoughts of ourself, to be the reality, a lot of our practice is to begin to awaken to, to begin to pay attention to all the, the various ways that we, that we do this, all the various ways that our mind do, does this and hypnotizes us, in a sense. How we fall into avijja, or ignorance, or delusion. And the Buddha described basically three main ways that we, three or four main ways that through our reactions to the simple feelings that present themselves, sometimes dramatic feelings, but our reaction to them spawns this internal drama and this compulsion to think about and to create this imagined reality with, as Mark said this morning, with me as the star of the show, this compulsion is called papancha. 
and the word itself even has that sound, papancha, just out of this nothing, these little charges that come from liking and disliking, it, it, uh, it's like the pressure builds and out comes this whole stream of thoughts. And it comes in such a fierce way, but it tends to be organized in particular ways, the way human beings operate, the way our brains function, the way that we have evolved. And basically, this, this personality view gets organized around, as I spoke about the other night, the wanting mind. It gets organized in general around the state of becoming. And of course, there's a state of becoming around the wanting mind, wanting to become better, become this, become that, get rid of this, uh, become great. It gets very much, the self-story gets very bound up in good, in better, in best. Do any of you relate to that? How high, how low? It gets very much involved in the measuring mind. Where are those measurements right now? How high, how low, how good, how bad? Enough or not enough? Where are they when we're really mindful? We may not appreciate that every one of those simple moments of mindful attention, we're stepping out of that house of insecurity, that, that house of cards called the comparing mind, the judging mind. But the three main ways are the compulsion to want or not want, so the desire and aversion. I'll talk a little bit more about those two ways that we form our personality view or identity. The compulsion to tether ourselves to views and opinions, especially those views and opinions I've already referred to about ourselves those cherished views we have about ourselves. And then the compulsion that is maybe the deepest and most frequent uh, way that this personality view is created is, um, is around what the Buddha called mana, or otherwise known as pride or conceit, otherwise known as the comparing mind, that mind that's measuring, putting ourselves above, below, equal to. Now, from our present vantage point, right here, there's no way to find above, below, and equal. So you can tell that that whole little game that our mind plays and torments us with describes someone who doesn't even exist. Do you appreciate that? That one who is above, below, and equal does not exist. It's a story about somebody. It's the imaginary version of you. And to the degree that you believe you are that one that is above, below, or equal to, you, you feel disturbed because it's of the past, ideas projected on the, our present experience, and then tethered to the future, whether we'll, whether we'll ever be great or not so great. But this is our compulsion, to be in this constant state of attempting to be a better you. So we can begin, the good news is, we can begin to notice this. We can actually put our personality views, we can put the pain of them, as Mark so beautifully kept pointing to and has through the retreat. 
we, kept, we keep using the effects of these to open that door of mercy and compassion, to bring that softness, to, to remind us of the fact that we're here, to let the very feelings that torment us when they spawn a thought, let those feelings bring us right back to that ground of attention. Of course, even though that attention fluctuates because, of, because we're not so practiced at attention, it is so much more reliable to find that ground of attention because that tension, it does not, uh, it doesn't, it's not affected by praise or blame. It's really a, a safe ground. It's a place that you can put your trust. You can hear from some of the enlightened poetry that, that many people, for the centuries, you're not alone in your, in your personality view problems. Every one of us, we all land in these views that make us feel really terrible. But through time, people have gotten some perspective. And by cultivating that knowing quality, we can begin to even have a sense of humor about the way that our personality view is formed. And in that process, we begin to unstick. We begin to touch that sense of well-being that doesn't depend on those stories that are playing through our mind. The Buddha called it lokutra sukha, a comfort and well-being that is independent of conditions, that doesn't, it's not caught up in the measuring, can notice the measuring, the comparing, the evaluating, the judging, but it's not caught up in it. Lokutra means beyond the world, unstuck from the world, beyond the power and influence of whatever's going on. That's the, what happens in every instant where we make that shift from being caught in one of these views to noticing them. And then that very noticing keeps brightening that sense of presence. So Kabir put it this way in his noticing of the, of the personality view and the way it tries to tether itself to many different things. He says, friend, Please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. <laughs> when the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. What is that that it holds on to? Sakaya Ditti, personality view. That anonymous poem, everybody wants to be somebody. Nobody wants to be nobody. But if that somebody could just be nobody, that nobody would really be somebody. <laughs> <laughs> to get some space around the compulsion to organize our identity, selfing around the wanting mind, can be actually quite entertaining. Of course, we feel the pain of that, that sense of suspended well-being, that sense that I can't be happy, 
And it's so, but to be able to make a shift to notice that, that's the beginning of freedom. To be able to feel the pain and let it be the cause of presence, to be the cause of compassion, to be, to be able to see a thought as a thought. To begin to have a sense of humor about our compulsions. I think at this point in the retreat, it's probably likely that many of you have had one of the sources of both pain and pleasure that comes on most retreats, otherwise known as the compulsion to create an identity around what's called the VR. Have you heard of the VR? VR means Vipassana romance, where in that very simple, innocent way, we're sitting around the retreat, doing our sitting, our walking, our asanas, just being ourselves, not being anybody in particular, except just our naturalness, just feeling, thinking, and all of a sudden, someone in the corner of our eye, the way they move, the clothes they're wearing, some movement of their hair or whatever it is, produces in the mind a pleasant feeling, a liking, and then the liking is followed by wanting. And it doesn't just stay with this little wanting, but it explodes. It explodes with this propulsion, this compulsion to mate, to date, to marry, to travel, to divorce, whatever it is, all in the span of a few minutes. Anybody admit to having had one on this retreat? <laughs> Thank you. I've had many in my life. And they were, at times, very entertaining because we also, with, with the, word, the word tanha, or craving, craving is often mixed with a feeling of delight. So on the surface, it's very delightful. But if we pay attention to the underlying universe, the feeling that goes along with being caught in one of those little dreamscapes, it's, it's actually quite turbulent. It's really vibrating. And there's a sense of, of real vulnerability and insecurity and the sense that I'll never be happy unless I consummate this. this I, don't, I mean that as a figure of speech. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful poem. It's a little bit long, but I, I just think it really captures both the, the, natural, the, the naturalness of this tendency for compulsion and to create our identity around the wanting mind, but also poignant in its, in its pain. It's a poem from a, a poet named George Bilger called Unwise Purchases. They sit around the house not doing much of anything. The box set of the complete works of Verdi, unopened. The complete Proust, unread. The French cut silk shirts, which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French cut silk shirt. The reflector telescope I bought or I thought, would unlock the mysteries of the heavens, but which I only used once or twice 
to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road and, and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. I like to think that one thing led to another between them, and that by tape six or so, they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in, in Seville or Terre Haute, Sevilla. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I have constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer <laughs> who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil, <laughs> gathering dust in the corner near the unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes, on the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case, <laughs> next to the abandoned chess set. A woman who has always dreamed of becoming, the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming, has always dreamed of meeting. And while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately to, in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen, fixing a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet, while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. This kind of compulsion that goes in our mind, organizing our identities around the wanting mind, has spawned this, this obsession that we have had in this culture of what's often been called keeping up with the Joneses. Keeping up, that it's, all, it's tied into the measuring mind, but it's constantly wanting the newer and the best. And one teacher named Bo Lozoff says, you know, it's time that we recognize that the Joneses are not happy. <laughs> They're caught in a trance. They're caught in the wanting mind. We can begin to notice this compulsion, the way our sense of identity, the imagined version of ourselves, gets formed around, uh, and then the, the belief that we must get to the end of that rainbow in order to feel relief. And it really torments us. And what happens to the present moment in that process? We lose contact. As we've been saying in many different ways, as Eckhart Tolle says, the present moment becomes this way, place that we pass through on our way to, to somewhere else. It becomes the obstacle, in fact. In many cases, it becomes the enemy. And it's a shame, because that's the only thing that exists, is this unfolding now future doesn't exist. It's just an idea. Somehow we throw it up in front of us and then hang our whole sense of well-being on it. The past, throw it behind us so it actually exists. It reminds me that this studied this tribe in graduate school that, that puts time exactly backwards. For that tribe, 
the past is in front and the future is behind. And then it makes me think of the of that tribe in Burma that survived the tsunami called the Mokan. People who lived very tuned into the sea, into the immediacy, into the rhythms of life. There were two words that they didn't have in their vocabulary. They didn't have the word when, and they didn't have the word want. But we do. So it's, we have to begin to notice the way these words play through our mind and how they tend to spawn this, this feeling of insufficiency, of not enoughness. And we can even use noticing of the wanting mind, noticing of the, of the identity that's caught up in that. Notice that, use that to remind us of our love of being right where we are. We could reverse all of the, everything I've said and talk about the, the way that our identity gets created around aversion and ill will, the, the aversive mind, and the way it manifests on retreats. That I'm sure many of you have had the experience of what's called the VV or the Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> Someone that triggers that, that fleeting reaction of unpleasantness, followed by dislike, followed by, by that uh, not wanting, followed by the, the mission, the project of, of, uh, of becoming someone who's rid of whatever that thing is, but usually there's a lot of time fixated on that, on that object. So we can notice that. Notice there's always me at the center of that whole story. There's me and there's mine. So views and opinions, I, I think We've spoken enough about these ideas of ourselves that can never capture us. This is the, what the Buddha called uh, Sakaya Ditti, views. Uh, and then all the kinds of views and opinions, political opinions, religious opinions, whatever opinions that we tend to get stuck on and our attachment to how things are supposed to be, how we're supposed to be. Uh, so much identity tethered to that, we can start to notice that. Oh, this is just attachment to views and opinions. This is just the identity, my identity hooked to this. And no wonder I feel so contracted, so insecure. This is a view. And I just want to spend a little more time before the end on the, this third kind. So we talked about a little bit about the papancha or proliferation of the personality view through desire and aversion, through getting caught up in all these views of myself, I'm not enough. I'm, uh, I'll, I won't ever be, I won't be happy, or I'm, I'm insufficient. This is just a view. Again, nobody has, I can't find it when I look through this room. It's really true. But what plays through our mind is a lot of these personality views. And perhaps the strongest one for many of us is that uh, what the Buddha called mana, or conceit, or pride, or the comparing mind. And this is the mind. There's three kinds he talked about of comparing mind. There's the what he called uh, atimana, 
which is the superiority view. I'm above. That feeling we have when we feel inflated, when we're looking good. You ever notice that? Somebody walks by doing your walking practice, or you catch somebody looking at you while you're doing your asanas, and especially if you have a particular identity around, around your yoga, you notice once you catch somebody looking at you, there's this little <laughs> puff. And whether it's walking or whether it's sitting, whatever it is, this is, the, this is atimana. This is the personality view around putting ourselves above. And we can have all kinds of stories and measurements of above, below. There is mana, which is the equality view. I'm equal to. That, it's that, that making sure that we measure up, that I'm okay, or am I above, below, or equal? And this is a, a main preoccupation, but we can notice that, oh, this is the comparing mind. This is mana. And then there's the amana, which is the inferior, inferiority view, less than. That's the one we tend to really ground in. This is the one that really torments us a lot, even though they're all quicksand, each one of these, because they describe somebody who doesn't exist, the imagined version of us. How does that feel when I say that this is the imagined version of you? Wonderful? It's interesting because I know when I, sometimes when these kinds of teachings have been presented, moment somebody says, this is not who you are, there's this kind of grab. No, I don't want to give up that. It was never yours to begin with. It's just an idea. And if you think about the times that you are most content and most happy, it's not when you're in that measuring process. As Rumi put it, don't run around this world looking for a hole to hide in. There are wild beasts in every cave. If you live with mice, the cat claws will find you. The only real rest comes when you're alone with the divine. That's to me another way of saying here. Live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere, and you have eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops, and you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, getting always smaller, checkmate this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. So what is that that we discover, free of these views of self, free of this personality view? What do we discover about our nature here? What can we really say? The way Kala Rinpoche put it, he says, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. But being nothing, you are everything. That is all. 
and Sri Nisargadatta, the way he put it, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between these two, my life flows. So the whole point of seeing through this self-illusion is to, to for all of us, for the benefit of all beings, to begin to see through the illusion of other, to see through the illusion of separateness, to unleash our love so that we know what that means. Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. It's not just to technically break apart the personality view. It's because unsticking, lokutra, unsticking from this view unleashes our deep sense of connection with things, a natural happiness and ease that is the natural state of our mind. I think we can just sit quiet, remain quiet for a moment, and then I'll end with a chant that expresses this, this boundless view that we begin to touch as we let go of the personality view. This is a chant, the words of Neem Karoli Baba. I am like the wind, no one can hold me. I belong to everyone, no one can own me. The whole world is my home, all are my family. I live in every heart, I will never leave thee. Oh, crystal tears, oh, taking away my fears. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for your practice. Just